Hello and welcome to the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'm Sam. Uh, I'm Patrick uh, at Ingiris42 on Twitter. And I'm Dom Paris at Dom D Paris on Twitter. And today we're talking about the block of episodes from there. And today we're talking about the block of episodes from Requiem for Methuselah to Turnabout Intruder. We finished the original series finally. Yeah. It only take took. To, yeah, my, and, my voice box isn't working today. It's only taken about three months, is what I was trying to say. And what a great batch of episodes to end on. <laughs> Certainly an interesting one. Yes, at least good to talk about. We'll start. We'll start off with uh, Requiem for Methuselah, which I'm not saying out loud again because I'll just keep botching it. Um, and as usual, Patrick will give a brief rundown of the plot of the episode. Sure. Um, so. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down by themselves to a planet and tell us in very clumsy exposition that exposition that everyone on the Enterprise is dying of some plague or another, and this is the only planet to get the antidote, and they're confronted by an old guy and his robot, uh, and he, after some posturing back and forth, uh, he says, okay, the robot's going to get your uh, antidote if you come to my castle to spend time with me and my weird ward person. Uh, and from there, it turns out that uh, the woman is an android, and Kirk falls in love with her, which breaks her because of something. And uh, Flint has <laughs> Flint has secretly been Methuselah, hence the title of the episode, and also Leonardo <gasps> da Vinci and Brahms and all kinds of famous people. Yeah. And then the episode ends. That's a good summary. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, it's exactly as batshit as it sounds. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on this one? Uh, well, my main one, I guess, that I shared on Twitter is that um, I had to do some digging to figure out whether this episode was ripping off Vandal Savage or the other way around. Uh, that's a, a very popular uh, supervillain in DC Comics. Uh, and Vandal came first by about 20 years, so, um, sorry, Trek. Uh-oh. And it is, I didn't pick up on it watching the episode, but as soon as you pointed it out, it is strikingly similar as the character who has been various people through history. It is, it is just the same thing. It's the same plot. Yeah, like, you know, as, as always with old Trek, I have to ask myself, you know, am, am I being unfair? Is this tiresome trope actually being invented before my eyes? And in this case, the answer is no. It's just kind of a, a trope that I don't get along with very well. Just being done in Trek. And how weird it is done in here. Um, I think... I think... We need to discuss. First of all, we need to discuss Flint's plan here because yes. it's it, it's very integral to the to the story. And so his plan is that he's immortal, and everyone he loves dies. So he mm. wants an android woman who he can love the, forever. The perfect woman, he said. The perfect android which woman, is yeah. Something. Which is, I mean, sure, yeah. whatever. But his plan involves raising this android as his, like, ward and telling her that he adopted her after her parents died? And not, yeah. And, like, you want this woman to fall in love with you so you tell her that she's your adopted daughter. Yeah, Yeah, wow. wow. Like, you could have 
built anything and told them anything and you decided to go for the creepiest scenario possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's quite something. Um Dom, what were your what were your thoughts on this one cuz it's a really weird episode and that's putting it lightly. Um I will say I really it had some really interesting camera work at the beginning which was weird. Um, and the, the remastered scenes of, uh, like, Flint's home are very impressive. Obviously, that was done in, whenever the remaster was done in 2008, uh, I think. Uh, it might not have looked that good in the 60s. Um, I, I watched Stop the original version, the trust cage. me, it didn't. Yes, it was. It was the, um, oh, what? the castle oh. from the cage. Yeah, the remastered, the remastered fixes a lot of stuff like that, which is one reason why I'm, I'm actually rather fond of it. Mm. And, yeah, um, unfortunately, my DVDs are from the original version, so... Oh, okay. But it's, it's Flint's plan of making his adopted daughter fall in love with Kirk so then he can make her fall in love with him is probably, like, the worst plan it's, in it's, just creepiness. It's possibly the stupidest plan in the entirety of the original series, I think. Because then he gets jealous, but obviously he gets jealous, but he's making himself get jealous to make sure that she has emotions. Um, and also he, he refers to her later as like my property and she's mine. Um, and yeah, I just don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, f- fun fact about this, uh, this absolutely enthralling love story of an episode <laughs> Is that it, it aired on Valentine's Day? Oh my god! Valentine's Day, nineteen sixty-nine. So um, what a romantic episode! Yeah, I, I can just imagine couples sitting down together to watch the episode where a man gets jealous because an android won't love him. Yeah, and he's made sixteen versions of her, um, and they've all failed. So, have all the previous versions like? Has he tried to do the same thing in? trying to get them to have emotions and then dying because at the end of the episode Raina the android she dies from having emotions so have all the other androids died at that point or is it they weren't perfected yet I honestly I, I have absolutely no idea it's I think it's best not to try and rationalize the episode and just accept that it makes absolutely zero I mean, sense it's interesting that it has the, okay, the androids uh, can't deal with these emotions because it does link in well to, I guess, data later on in the fact that he needs a emotion, he doesn't have emotions and he needs a specific type of technology to have it. Um, so it could just be like an advancement of technology. But then Flint has such advanced technology that he's able to magic the Enterprise out of space and turn it into a model and freeze time for everyone. So, it's weird that he can't make an android that has emotions. It's very it's very inconsistent, I think, as to what exactly mm. Flint is capable of. Yeah. Um, yeah, so something that bothered me, because you, obviously you mentioned at the end of the episode we see Rainer finally have an emotion and then die. Yes. Which... <laughs> Is honestly just I, a mood, um, <laughs> but what what bothers me about this episode is Kirk's reaction to that. 
because Kirk has known this what he perceives to be a woman and we won't get into the ethics of whether androids yeah. count as people or not That's <laughs> but Kirk has known this woman for maybe three hours I think they say when they arrive on the planet they have four hours before the fever goes too far and he's destroyed by her death to the point that Spock has to wipe his memory Though, I will say, in regards to that, I think that is the biggest point of evidence for people saying that Spock loves Kirk. I think that's the biggest thing, because he sees Kirk in so much pain of this woman dying, and he goes to help him and remove, uh, make him forget her. And I think that's such an interesting part, and made me actually think, oh... Spock loves Kirk because also you have McCoy previously to him removing uh, to Spock removing Kirk's mind that McCoy's like oh you're a Vulcan you can never love love isn't in your vocabulary which was quite harsh for McCoy but then Spock looks at Kirk and makes him feel better by removing the memory and I think that's so cool absolutely and I think it is a brilliant scene in isolation and especially mm. like that speech from Bones, as harsh as it is, is a brilliant speech as well. Yeah. But what bothers me is, like I say, Kirk knew Raina for maybe three hours. And that's fine on its own. Maybe he's a very emotional person. Maybe he gets attached very quickly. But in the context of the rest of the show, when you've had episodes like City on the Edge of Forever... Yeah. ...or Paradise Syndrome, where he's... Like, he, he knew Edith Keeler for at least a few days, a couple of weeks, potentially. Yeah, I think He was with weeks. Miramani for... A couple of weeks, I think. I'm not 100 sure on the exact timelines. Months actually and for Miramani. Months. months. There we are. Jeez. And yet he doesn't seem nearly as destroyed by their deaths as he was by Rainers, who he knew for three hours at most. Yeah, and I think it's the it, it's meant to be the weird fact that she is the perfect woman. That oh she's which is not I don't like. Um, yeah, but that that's what the episode, I think, tries to say that she's such, like she's the pinnacle of women that Kirk is so distraught over her, and that's weird. <laughs> Which is a take, certainly. Yeah, I think one of the biggest struggles I had with the episode is the the dissonance between the first scene and then the rest of it, which Spock kind of keeps lampshading. Um, I have a really hard time with the fact that, you know, this this plague is going to, like, cleanse the Enterprise of life, including, presumably, the landing party. Um, but they all get just distracted by all the neat stuff they find in the castle, whether it's an android or whether it's new Da Vinci's or new Brahms. Mm. Um, I would have liked, I think, this episode and the Cloudminders more if they'd switched... Uh, excuse plots so that there was a little bit more of an abstract a little bit more of a distant concern for this one uh, and then maybe a little more immediate threat would have made the cloud minders go down a bit better if the characters seem more desperate yeah that's a very interesting point and I think I agree with that yeah yeah, I think I could, I could get behind that as well to be honest it's... because it's weird that both this and Cloudminders, a later episode we're going to talk about, is about a plague in different perspectives. 
Uh, I mean, I feel like they might have made the change because the Enterprise is always racing off to save a planet, right? Um, so they might have just said, and the producers were very concerned at this time to avoid repetition. They weren't always successful, but they were concerned about it. And so I wonder if that was, you know, you got to make, you got to make this feel different. You got to change it up. But then the the side effect is this is a story that has almost no Enterprise in it. Um, but that we're supposed to expect that the Enterprise is in mortal danger. Yeah, that's a fair point. We don't really see the actual threat at all. It's not... No, you only it doesn't see... feel... Sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, it doesn't feel threatening because there's no evidence of it other than just Kirk saying that it's happening. Yeah. And in, and in the see... first... In the first season, if I sorry to interrupt, but in the first season, Kirk would absolutely have been more upset over the three dead crewmen than the love interest of the week. Yeah, definitely. I think that cause that's something I brought up when I was tweeting about this episode as well. Is there's a, there's a particular scene where Kirk goes, like, I think it's just after they find out that the is it Rytalin? Yeah, Rytalin. After they find out that it's impure and won't work, Kirk says some long lines of, "Am I wasting my time down here, letting my crewmen die while I play diplomat with this man?" And then Rayner walks in, and he immediately stops caring because there's an attractive woman in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, very typical. You know, it's James not Kirk. like it's not like people can't relate to that, but like people aren't Captain Kirk, and that used to be emphasized a little bit more. Yeah. Um, it's it's an interesting episode for sure. Um, some something that I noticed when I was doing my research for this because I, I gather the uh, trivia facts from IMDb and stuff like that. Um, and honestly, we touched on most of it already, actually. But um, something that I think Patrick will appreciate at the very least because I'm pretty sure you said a couple of episodes ago that I wouldn't be able to say this again. But um, a piece of nomad turns up in this episode. I said no such thing. I'm sure Nomad is everywhere. <laughs> nomad is, I think I said I think I said that um, I need like a Nomad alert klaxon, and you said that it wouldn't get much use. <laughs> um, but yeah, the undercarriage of the uh, M4 sort of robot thing uh, is a reused part of Nomad because everything is a reused part of Nomad in this fucking show. You know what? In the interest of saying something nice about this episode, I like M4. They're, like, I think it's effective considering the limitations of the time, and there should really be more little robot drone buddies like this in the setting because the technology allows for it. Yeah, and I liked how you could obviously tell it was just on a piece of wire moving around the place with how it moved. But oh, yeah. it, it worked really, I think it worked really well. I think there are, there are actually a couple of scenes where you can see the wire as well. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, but what's yeah, the wire attached the wire to? Maybe this is part of Flint's part of mysterious technology. technology. You know, like how Spider-Man can true. swing on nothing. The wire, the wire is attached to one of those weird circular tank things that Da Vinci came up with. <laughs> um, that's an interesting reference. Um... Yeah, um, like I say, obviously, touching on, as we just did, the trivia that I pick up, um, we've touched on most of it already for this episode. The only one bit that we haven't mentioned, uh, Rainer's full name is given as Rainer Kapek, um, which, Kapek being the surname of the author Carol Kapek, who invented or came up with the term robot. 
which is quite a nice touch. Quite a nice touch, but also really does spoil the twist of the episode if you know that in advance. This was but, apparently yeah. considered a little bit spot on by the script editor, but the the writer stuck to their guns and it and it stayed. Yeah, but I feel. That, like, I mean, that's sorry, not said on. in the episode, is it? I'm not uh, forgetting that. I think when he, I think when Flint introduces her, he yeah, introduces yeah. her as Raina Kopeck at the at the beginning. Oh, I completely missed that. But because obviously he's yeah. told her that that she had parents and shit. Makes sense. I mean, yeah. frankly, it's not much of a twist, regardless. Well, no. <laughs> Um, but yeah, if, unless anyone else has anything to say, that's Requiem for Methuselah. Yeah, um, short, but I guess kind of sweet, or not, who knows. <laughs> yeah, I just, this, it, it, it just happens. The pod, this podcast just happens. We speak, and then stuff happens, and I put it out. It is, there's no formatting here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that professional. Um, sorry. The next episode that we need to talk about is The Way to Eden. Uh-uh. My favorite. <laughs> Your f- oh, <laughs> let's. Um... So I will say before we start, um, the reason why I say this it, it isn't actually my favorite, but I have such n- weird nostalgia for this episode because, as a kid, I must have watched this like ten or twenty times because for some reason it was always on TV. So I watched it a lot and I know it a bit, but. It's a weird episode, but I just like it because of that nostalgia reason. Conversely, uh, I watched it for the very first time, uh, and you'll this is a bit of a pattern. I watched it for the very first time for this podcast um, because yeah. people have, have trash-talked it so much over the years that I was kind of uh, dreading watching it. Uh, and, you know, and it turns out that almost has more to do with, you know, people just really freaking hate hippies um, <laughs> and, like, resent the fact that this episode kind of took that on. But, like... You can't blame the 60s for being the 60s. And we forgive yeah. we forgive a lot of other seemingly dated stuff in this show. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, like, this episode has that reputation for being a bad episode. Literally, when I saw the characters turn up, I think when I was tweeting about it, I saw the sort of hippie characters, if you like, turn up on the screen and immediately tweeted, oh god, it's the one with the fucking hippies, isn't it? <laughs> because that's the reputation this episode yeah. has. I thought I, you know, and again, because, you know, I only read the, like, critical reviews and I sort of dread it, but, like, they're not literal 60s hippies. They stick to the metaphor. Everything that they do makes, is justified in the sense of the setting in the Federation. In fact, in a much more careful way than, for instance, season one might have done, where, you know, one day they were flying for USPA and one day they were flying for, for whatever. But, you know, the, the, a lot of the little plot choices work for me. Like, they have to treat him with kid gloves because there's a son of the ambassador. Um, that there's this kind of manipulative cult figure. Um, I guess I should actually summarize this because that's usually what I do. Yeah. I'm, half, I'm halfway <laughs> to doing that anyway. So, uh, you know, the United States... Uh, the Enterprise. <laughs> the United Spaceship Enterprise. Um tracks down a stolen Federation vessel and it's full of future hippies. Uh, that are led by this sort of like malevolent cult leader and his agenda is that you know the processed sterile artificial environments uh, of the future uh, has given him an incurable illness which is kind of resonant with uh, you know antibiotic resistant bacteria and stuff that we found out about later Um, 
And so he is kind of appealing to the instincts of these young people, like, you know, we don't want to live in this future anymore, we want to go to this pure Eden place, uh, which apparently is a literal planet. And in these sort of conflicts they have with the crew, because they're much more straight-laced, but everyone wants to sort of understand each other because of Edic and so forth, uh, but the cult leader takes advantage of everybody, hijacks the Enterprise, flies it to Eden, uh, but because we had to end with a really clumsy metaphor, uh, it turns out uh, Eden is literally toxic, and uh, the uh, one of the hippies is unfortunately killed, and uh, the cult leader then deliberately kills himself with the toxic fruit, um, and in protest of the uh, injustice and indignity of the situation. But everybody... Uh, comes back to the inter- everyone else comes back to the enterprise including uh Chekhov's ex-girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yeah, which was an odd plot point. Um I do just I do just want to mention as well that you you didn't mention there when talking about the very very obvious sort of religious metaphors here and the comparisons to the story of Eden. Uh you mentioned obviously the toxic fruits and him being killed by a fruit. Um what you didn't mention is that the first sort of hippie person, the young person to die, is also called Adam. Well, I don't have to mention it because Spock, like, turns to the camera and explains it. Yeah, literally just, just, his name was Adam. Okay, thank you, Spock. Um, yeah, this was, like I said, I didn't hate it as much as, as much as its reputation. I mean, it's it's rated the worst episode according to like IMDb ratings and stuff like that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. There are some worse episodes. There are not even close. Alternative factor for a start. Um, oh god, yeah. Metamorphosis. <laughs> I could go on all day. No. Um, yeah. It it just it struggles with what it wants to be because it starts off as very much critical of sort of effectively hippie culture and that sort of thing and then switches tack halfway through to be actually they're fine they're just being manipulated by this evil cult bloke mm. as like, whose side are you on here i mean i i think that it is trying to reach a compromise i think they deliberately set up scott as the reactionary and he's not right about everything and as usual, you know, this they go for the golden mean because it's written by white liberals in the 60s who are putting out a show for all of TV. So they always kind of land in the middle like that. But, I, you know, I think it has compassion for the young people and sort of lands on, on Severin as the, as the villain. Possibly the most interesting thing about this episode in a meta sense is the episode that it almost was. Uh, so it was essentially a project of DC Fontana, who is one of the great Star Trek writers from season two on. Uh, it was supposed to introduce Dr. McCoy's daughter from his, his ended marriage, Joanna. Oh, this episode? And she, then she was going to have a relationship with Kirk, and it was going to set up this great conflict between McCoy and Kirk. And, you know, and this is DC Fontana, who basically created... Spock as we know him, Journey to Babel, Amok Time, um, and this was uh, sort of another sort of fundamental interaction of the trio. 
And, you know, they couldn't fit it into season two, but she was assigned it for season three. And the basic plot beats of this episode kind of came into being there because some of the tension was going to come from, you know, Joanna had fled her career as a Starfleet nurse. She couldn't have been a doctor, whatever. Um, as a Starfleet nurse, in order to, to be with these people and search for meaning, it would create all this tension with, uh, with McCoy. Then you have the romantic tension with Kirk. And then you still have, you know, Severin as sort of the villain for, you know, all the real conflict to land on. The problem, apparently, was that Fred Freiberger, who, who took over as the day-to-day -day producer from Gene Roddenberry, and, you know, didn't, he, ha he was in a very tough position, um, and he did a lot of good things. But uh, DC Fontana, you know, was talking to him about the story, and he's like, I don't think we can run this because McCoy and Kirk are the same age. And DC Fontana is like, are, are you kidding me? What? You know, we've always played this as, you know, D is 10 years or more older than Kirk. But he's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work for me. I don't buy it. Um, we're going to have to rework this. And then, you know, I guess he remembered something he said to Walter Koenig. You know, Koenig came to Fred Freiberger when he came on and was like, hey, you know, big fan, really looking forward to year three. Um, I really want to do some interesting things with Chekhov. And, you know, Fred Freiberger basically told you, ha, that's nice. Now, you know, go fuck off already. Uh, but then, you know, came back around and said, hey, good news, kid. We're actually going to give you something. And, you're, you know, we're going to get this love story. Uh, and then Koenig actually hated it. Um, you know, I think it works personally, but Koenig actually hated the material. And then Fred Freiberger said for the rest of his life, what an ungrateful bastard Walter Koenig was. Well, yeah, apparently, wow. apparently Koenig felt that Chekhov was too authoritative and by the book in this episode. Wait, is he? Is he? He doesn't seem to be characterized much different from how he normally is. No. I, d I didn't get that impression. I don't know. I don't quite understand where Walter's coming from there but I mean maybe he played it differently and the actual material was more by the book it, um, yeah it's, it's possible. a possibility but I think yeah, the issue is that Chekhov or, or Koenig saw himself as you know I'm coming in as Chekhov to be this youth element and then okay but now we're introducing super hippies and you get to be the square compared to them and he right. just didn't like that yeah, that makes sense. Samwise. Yeah, I see that. Um, James Duhan actually also hated this episode, interestingly. <laughs> this was, according to my research, his least favourite episode, which I feel like I've already said about a different episode, so I don't know if he changed his mind about that. But, <laughs> he, but he apparently can contain this was, multitudes. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, apparently this was his least favourite episode. I can, I can understand why from a from the perspective of being in it because it's such a sort of weird and different thing um it's also it also very much suffers from the series three curse of we have absolutely no fucking budget left i mean there's so much reused footage in this you've got reused footage from surely from spock's brain from the apple from uh, like five or six different episodes because they just had no money left at this point yeah yeah and i think um isn't the class the the ship that the heavy steel that's the same as Harry Mudd's ship? Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. Yes and no. Um, no. So in the in the original footage, it's the Tholian cruiser backwards with two 
Klingon warp nacelles added to it, so it looks a bit more Starfleet. You know, and the the shape looks pretty Starfleet, but you know, obviously the components don't. Yeah. Uh, and then Michael Okuda uh, got permission to redesign it completely for the remastered series and created a very Starfleet-looking ship with the same general shape, which you can buy from Eagle Moss for nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> But then because Sorry. it was it was described in a very similar way to the MUDS vessel from way back in MUDS Women, they they used the ship in both episodes. So it's the same class by the power of retcon. Um, Patrick, have you picked up a fucking sponsorship again? <laughs> that's, two week, that's two weeks in a row now you've been shilling. <laughs> um... No, it's ironic, ironic shilling. <laughs> it's Best especially kind of ironic shilling. because we got someone who works for Eagle Moss on in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, cool, I can tell them how I've purchased about 0.5% of their catalog. Which is still probably like 3,000 different things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like, I mean, we're getting through them a li- these a little bit quicker than normal this week, but I feel like as, as interesting as these episodes are, there's they're very I don't I don't know what else there is to say about it like it was an episode that happened it had a weird space hippie thing what what else do we discuss here I know you know honestly I thought the pacing was a little better on this one than than in many of them in it but it's mostly through character interactions not very yeah. much happens which several of these episodes have been struggling with but where they fill that in is mostly really interesting interactions with Spock um, whether it's between it's with him and the young people, or this very dramatic scene with him and Severin, where we really find out kind of what the that guy's deal is, and then Severin uh, manipulating them, and uh, the back and forth with with Chekhov in Arena, um, and you know all the dramatic beats sort of fall into place, but then you know just the status quo doesn't really change. You know at the end. Two people are dead, and that's that. Yeah, it doesn't have a huge impact in the long run on on sort of the universe. It's it's a very and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Small stake small stake stories are fine. Yeah, but it's just sort of yeah, it doesn't it doesn't do a lot. It doesn't do a lot, but the like interpersonal stuff which you uh, remarked on, I enjoy, especially all the Spock stuff. Oh, definitely. The um, Spock stuff is brilliant in this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting seeing his... Um, the difference between him and Kirk, especially when they just beam uh, the space hippies on board, and, you know, the space hippies are calling Kirk a Herbert, yeah. which we haven't even mentioned, which is just... Oh, in these episodes, there's a lot of weird slang. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's so. nice to see that the Civilian Federation exists, which we really yes. don't see enough of. Yeah, but um, yes, yeah, so, but then you've got Spock who, you know, does the same action as them and is very respectful towards them and what they view, uh, which is a nice touch. It truly is because you know Spock is. You know, Spock is played in different ways in different scripts, and it's really easy to imagine him being this kind of, like, figure of authority. You know, like, pilot Spock, that's the role he would have played. 
But you know, in in this case though, you know, we have we have a little more context. We have Edic. We know that he struggled so much as a youth now because DC Fontana established that backstory. And I just I just enjoy the sort of ironic counterpoint of like Kirk being the young maverick, but he doesn't understand them. And then Spock being the rigid rule follower, but because he's also such a good diplomat, he does touch them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It. What was the, What's what's the saying? It's not. It's not. I feel you. It's something else. They say, isn't it? I reach you. I reach. I reach you, yeah, it. reach. That's it. Yeah, and there was that really nice scene with um, Adam and Spock, and they're they're just playing music in Spock's room, and. Uh, Adam's like, oh, I, I reached that. That's pretty good. Um, and yeah, as much I, as I, I think. I, I, go on. No, sorry. I was gonna say as much as I think, like the. I mean, we're calling them hippies. I don't know what. We'll go with well, hippies as the term for them. It's the closest thing we. Yeah, as much as they are, very obviously written to be obnoxious and annoying. I think Adam, at the very least, is a really likable character. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he, yeah, he he plays, plays like, like nice, nice upbeat music, music, and you can't help but like, like that's pretty good. Um, well, yeah, and it does it, so it helps that it. a lot. The music is quite quite nice music as well. Yeah. yeah. One thing that's very interesting though when I watch this is Charles Napier, who plays Adam, has really sort of made a reputation as a character actor playing the exact opposite. opposite. Um, so he will appear in uh, in Deep Space Nine many years mm. hence uh, as a 1950s Air Force general, um, and he played basically the same role in the first Austin Powers movie. And like he's that's now his like stock character type, a complete 180 from how Adam is. Yeah, and I think he played Adam really well. Uh, so it's nice that he, you know, he's not just typecast he wasn't just typecast as this uh general authoritarian leader well, it was but more like the typecast hadn't happened yet ah yeah. Uh, yeah that's true um but yeah i've um i've actually not got any trivia that we haven't already touched on for this episode so unless anyone has anything else to say about that one um no, i don't think so we'll we'll move on to the cloud minders um <sighs> patrick do you want to give us the quick rundown sure um <laughs> Sorry about my dog, everyone. Uh, I'm, right. <laughs> I'm home by myself, so I uh, have to kind of supervise them. That's but, all right. Uh, Cloudminders, though. Uh, so the Enterprise goes to a planet because they have to get the only cure to some plague somewhere. So yet again, this story device yep. is used. Um they beam down to the surface to a mine to get the stuff, and then they look up and see Cloud City. Uh, and uh, as a visual reminder that, you know, this planet is a new member of the Federation, but they still very much have the haves and the have-nots. Uh, the miners are revolting. Ha ha ha. And, you know, they, everyone gets in a really awkward fight, and they don't get their, their material that they need, their MacGuffin. So they get invited up to the Cloud City and to watch them try and torture some of these underlings to get the uh, to get the material back. Uh, and everyone starts to think, "Wow, this might be really, really bad." Uh, 
And then, you know, the first half of the episode, I thought I was kind of with it. Like, okay, they're dealing with this class conflict. They're, you know, kind of this messy stuff. But then it turns out that all the underlings really are underlings because they're physically, uh, mentally less capable than everybody else, which is awkward. But then, in another twist, it turns out it's because of invisible gas that fills up the mines, and they can solve everything by just wearing a really stupid thing on their head. But um, one thing I did like at the end, though, is it's, it's left off very open-ended, uh, in that you know Kirk manages to prove the existence of the gas to the city dwellers, and he manages to get the uh, antidote, which is, of course, why the Enterprise was really there. Um, but it's definitely not like sunshine and roses at the end. It feels like, okay, they've got some hard work to do on this planet. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, an, it, I mean, I say this a lot. It's becoming a bit of a catchphrase for me, but it's, it's definitely an interesting episode, whether, whether you think it's good or not. Um, I know someone who, someone who doesn't think it's very good is, um, is actually David Gerald himself. Uh, who reportedly uh, really hated what they did to this episode. Well, of course, they rewrote it. Yeah, they basically rewrote the entire thing. Um, He originally envisaged this as more of a... Well, originally, for a start, as having three factions rather than two. You'd have the city dwellers um, sort of as a faction themselves, and then two factions of miners, what he described as being effectively the Martin Luther King faction and the Malcolm X faction. Oh, God. Which is glad. not subtle in the slightest. I'm kind of glad they didn't do that. No. Um, I kind of see some of his point, because like like you said, it's it becomes, oh, well, actually, they actually are inferior because of this gas. And it's like, that's not not a great way of doing it. And he, he agreed that that was not great at all. And I've got a, I've got a quote from him here. And I'm not going to I'm not going to quote it verbatim because there's a particular word in there that I should not be saying as a white person. But um, but he said he uh, responded to the whole gas plotline by saying, "If we can just get them troglites to wear gas masks, then they'll be happy little." And I'm not going to say the next word, but it's a slur for black person, and they'll pick all the cotton we need. Ugh. Oh, that. That was his. That was his opinion of that episode, and I can kind of see what he's trying to say. But my God, that's a bad no. way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, I think they were. It's a great idea for the Star Trek setting. The idea of this planet, where you know, it turns out they haven't been able to just wish all their class conflict away. You know that um, the end of scarcity uh, does not mean the end of oppression. And just joining the Federation doesn't mean that everything gets solved right away. And, you know, in some ways it kind of feels like Deep Space Nine looking at the the underbelly of the Federation there. But the problem is you've now you're now exploring something that's too complicated to be wrapped up in 50 minutes. Uh, And that was the core of the conflict, I think, um, you know, that the Fred Freiberger just did not think that David Gerald was a very good writer. Uh, which can be disagreed with. Uh, it, it turns out that Fred Freiberger hated the trouble with Tribbles and thought that Trek should move as far away from that as possible, <laughs> which, of course, was, you know, Gerald's kind of masterpiece. 
Yeah. Uh, so they didn't. They just didn't get along very well. Um, and it really smacks of like, okay, let's take this this idea where we're gonna have this literal metaphor of the haves and the have-nots, and we're gonna start to introduce some of that like complexity, like class traders and whatnot. But then it needs to all be down to this plot device that we can resolve so that we feel good about it in the end. So in that case, do you think this episode would have been better? I mean, I know they didn't really do this uh, during TOS, but would it have been better if it was a two-parter, per se? I mean, it's it's possible. I, I, I still don't know how you would resolve it, but mm. the, the problem that the first act creates is... But one legit, I really like the first act, honestly, but yeah. it's too big for the Enterprise. And yeah. then they can't fit in all the other obligatory stuff like having, you know, Kirk and Spock each get someone to flirt with. I, I say flirt, <laughs> flirt in big quotation marks for Kirk in this case. Yeah, because when he's, uh, like, struggling with someone, he then says, I find this rather enjoyable. And... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was not a good line. To the credit of the writing and the acting there, she never once acts like she's falling for Kirk's shit. Yeah. It is completely yeah. one-sided and not reciprocated. No, absolutely. I think um, what he touched on there as well with the whole sort of Kirk and Spock having someone to flirt with, I think this batch of episodes in particular very much seems to be the batch where everyone inexplicably starts falling for Spock and Kirk's very insulted not to be taken as like the hunk of the ship <laughs> like it, it seems like every other episode someone like oh yeah but Spock well that that's just reflecting what was happening in the fandom like this is what yeah. the, the people wanted to see that's that's very true um Something that I did find very interesting about this episode, doing the research. So Jeff Corey plays uh, plays us in this episode, um, the sort of the high advisor. The high, yeah, high advisor. That's the word the they bad use. Guy. Yeah. yeah, basically. Uh, something that I find quite ironic about that, of him being sort of this very the leader of the haves in this have versus have not thing, mm. is this is one of Jeff Corey's very few acting roles. Because he was blacklisted from so much of the sort of movie and t t film and TV industry for being a communist. Yeah, um, I mean, which is incredibly ironic for given the role he plays in this episode. Like, I, I don't know how, how how true that is culturally over there, but in the USA, all these years later, all you have to say is the blacklist. He was on the blacklist because right, everyone okay. kind of knows what happened back then with with McCarthy. Mm. Oh yeah, of course. I'm I'm vaguely aware of of McCarthy. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, and and back in there was like a filter that happened at one point in Hollywood when you were you know sort of big enough that either you named names and you kept working or you didn't and you didn't and you know right. some of this conflict was ideological because some actors really are communists and that's okay and some actors are reactionaries and like yeah maybe that's less okay. <laughs> um, but it it informs some of the work that came after, like the people who are still able to work are almost like exercising their guilty consciences. 
And then you could see over the next decade how some of these these blacklisted folks like Jeff Corey, you know, kind of exploited contacts and, and, and got back got back into the system. Yeah, it's interesting because you think like this doesn't seem like that. I mean, it's obviously 50 odd years ago now, nearly 55 years ago. It doesn't like that's living memory for a lot of people. And it, it's weird to think of how different and how restrictive the in- industry was back then that you did have such such like infamous blacklists and stuff it's not i'm not i'm not aware of of what the industry was like this side of the atlantic to be able to compare it but it's 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 just it's a very sort of stark reminder of how different time was back then <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, back then all the reactionaries hated Russia, now all the reactionaries love Russia, so... That's, yeah, that's true. Um, but, yeah, um, again, I feel like we're not, we're not got as much to say about these ones. It's well, just, there's it's... some interesting thing oh, to say about this one. Just in regards to, like, Federation politics, and in, in, in later series, obviously... It's said that, oh, you can't join the Federation when you have uh, such policies uh, that they have here. And I guess it wasn't, uh, that wasn't a thing in the the 23rd century. Um, But it's just weird that they've been admitted to the Federation, but they have all these problems. Yeah, I picked up on that as well. It's yeah. See, and and I kind of disagree because in in the episode itself, in the context of the episode itself, the information we're presenting, it feels like oh, you know, that kind of slipped through the cracks. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that happens. Like they're they're very very eager to get new members to join the federation. Um, so in theory, you have to have like this united government, and you you know, you got to be at least willing to accept the technology to take away like poverty and scarcity and stuff like that. Um, but also, you know, even in the 23rd century, it's kind of the wild west out there, um, and it feels like this is exactly the kind of problem that would crop up within a few years of of um, bringing this new federation member in. Uh, the one thing that frustrated me though is I I felt it was a little bit. It was a little bit inconsistent whether this was a human colony, you know, because of them talking about, oh, Spock, the Vulcan is so different. Uh, but then they also say, oh, we evolved here. So it's like, oh, you know, they're aliens that just look human, which the original yeah. series did a lot and the other ones yeah. not so much. Um, and I felt like it might have been a stronger story if they'd been explicit, like, yes, these are humans from Earth and they still created this, this oppression. Yeah, right. Yeah, that would have been I think interesting. The thing that the thing that bothered me about it is is less the fact that they were admitted to the Federation, but like they're very clearly in violation of some kind of Federation law at this point. Yeah. I don't yeah. know the exact bloody like. There's there's people who'd be able to list off every single law in the Federation. I'm definitely not one of them. But <laughs> um, but Kirk and Spock are very nonchalant about that. They're just like um yeah okay whatever. But then also like um. I think at one point, I don't know who says it, but uh, someone says that the High Advisor, uh, they're in their right to execute Kirk. And would that be the case? Are, are they just allowed to execute Kirk? And... Well, we get in a later episode of this block the the statement that uh, the Federation has outlawed uh, yeah, exactly. the death penalty. Uh, General Order 4. General Order, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't... 
it, it's again a victim of a, me and Don were talking about this a little bit before we started. Of it's a victim of being early on in the obviously we're three series in, but it's still early on in terms of the franchise. We're what TOS is a tenth of the franchise in total, and yeah, so diminishing, diminishing as it goes on. Sixth episode of eight hundred. So yeah, yeah. You're, you're still very early. You're still establishing a lot of stuff, and it it has that sort of early franchise teething issues. Mm-hmm. And things slip through the cracks a bit more, I think. Yeah, the li- the the line between allies of the Federation and Federation members has always been a bit blurry, and I wonder to what extent this is deliberately so. Like, you know, they seem to have decided eventually, and it's not at all clear in the first couple seasons of TNG, but they seem to have decided eventually, okay, the Klingons are a little bit too savage to actually be Federation members. Like, they don't want to change. That's fine. We're just going to be allies. Um, With a lot of the little, like, sort of satellite planets and Star Trek lower decks of all things kind of goes into this, it's sort of like, you know, yeah, join yeah, join the Federation and, you know, we'll sort of worry about all that other stuff later. Yeah. Um Trivia. I've not I've not got a huge amount of this one either that I haven't already talked about. Um we are we are doing a good job of picking up on stuff before I get to say it in this episode. Um This is the only time in which the communication screen in the transporter room is seen. Oh. Which is a mildly interesting fact, I guess. I didn't even notice that. Um, when they are telling places about the masks, they're in the communication room when they sort of call him and tell him about it. Oh, yeah. um, and the only other bit I've got about this episode is apparently, and I don't have a source for this because I didn't have time to research it before we started, but apparently this episode was the direct inspiration for Cloud City in Star Wars. Hmm. Which makes sense when you think about it. But yeah. yeah. Well, this is a literal cloud city. And that's a it is, city it, in a cloud. It's literally a city on a cloud. It's yeah. Um, one thing I found really interesting, I don't know if it counts as trivia, but the lasso weapons, which the troglites have, are called fongs. And that's weird. Yeah. I actually didn't pick... I picked up on them using the word thong and yeah. didn't well, work keep, out what Keep in mind that they didn't really have the underwear yet. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, like, that's what thong means. Just like how bikini used to be an atoll. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> but, yeah, so, um... I mean, that's that's the Cloudminders. Um, yeah. Next, the next episode that we to to to, to close with one nice thing per my attempted yeah, tradition, um, the part where the guy jumps off the balcony, I found really surprisingly affecting. Like in a lot of the episode, is coasting on that. Yeah, I think I yeah. can agree with that. Yeah, in my notes, I just was like, "Damn, he just jumped off." Yeah. But yeah, it was it was effective. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so um, Savage Kurt. <gasps> Savage curtain. <laughs> Patrick, take it away. Okay. Uh, let me... Uh... Alright. So, Savage Curtain, they're uh, investigating a new world, which is, you know, very, very different from Earth. It's all, like, lava flows and stuff. Basically, Mustafar. Um, and they're about to, you know, record their findings and fly off uh, when all of a sudden, uh, Abraham Lincoln calls him up on Skype. Uh, <laughs> and everybody finds this very curious. Um, and, As you would. 
and you know and bring brings them on and has all these interactions and you know lincoln can't quite explain what's going on but he knows it has to do with you know with the planet and they want you know kirk and spock to come down to the planet so you know in the interest of uh, investigating uh, strange new worlds and whatnot uh they go down to the planet and they talk to uh, kind of a, a sassy rock monster uh <laughs> who also summons uh, surak to impress Spock, Surak being the father of Vulcan philosophy, mm. uh, and then they, you know, they create four of history's villains, and uh, this, you know, kind of taking an inter- interesting approach for Star Trek. Uh, only one of them is actually uh, another historical figure, and the rest are all like future made-up historical figures. Uh, and uh, the rock monster wants them all to fight because they read in the the Enterprise library computer of these things called good and evil, which they don't really understand because they're just rock monsters and hang out in lava all day. So they're going to simulate good and evil and make them fight to see which one is stronger. And Kirk and Spock point out that this is really dumb, but the rock monster says, I can destroy your ship anytime I want, so I really don't care what you think. Uh, and yeah, and they, you know, they fight it out, and uh, you know, we lose Lincoln and Surak, but the evil people basically all escape. And then the rock monster says, "Huh, well, you know, that was they're they're kind of cowards, uh, but but good and evil use the same methods." And then Kirk points out, though, but the only reason we good people were fighting at all was under threat. You know, we fought to save lives, and the evil fought for power. And that satisfies the rock monster, and it lets them go. Which is a definitely weird ending. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, a lot of this episode didn't make a lot of sense to me when I was watching. Okay, yeah, as a first-time watcher, what was your impression when Abraham Lincoln just appeared? Um, <laughs> confusion, mainly. Yeah. I, because... Obviously, we spoke earlier about my reaction to seeing the sort of space hippies turn up in yeah. The Way to Eden and me sort of going, oh, it's that episode because I've seen the reputation that it's got. I had never heard of this before. Mm. So Abe Lincoln turns up on my screen in the middle of my 23rd century sci-fi, <laughs> tw- there. 23rd <laughs> century sci-fi show. Yeah. Put me teeth in. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I had absolutely no. I was just like, "What the fuck is going on?" Yeah, it, I I think that's uh, a good thing to say about this episode. What the fuck is going on? So and something sorry, like like the way to Eden. This is an episode that I hadn't watched before because I was kind of dreading Ooh. it, and people don't seem to like it that much. And like the way to Eden, I found myself you know favorably impressed actually. You know, I think yeah. I think Space Lincoln is just a good classic Star Trek moment. Um, Absolutely. And you know the and the franchise as a whole gets so much mileage out of the concept of uh, Surak that's introduced here. And then, yeah, this is the first time it's Surak is brought up. Yep, and, and then, I think Kalos as well. Yeah, the so name the good. name, if not the character of Kalos the Unforgettable, is carried forward in extremely important and memorable ways. Um, and yes. even uh, even Colonel Green gets folded into the mythology of uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Yep. Yeah. And then, moreover, I you know it's it's kind of an obvious riff on uh, Arena from back in the first season. 
But yeah, what definitely. I liked about it is that, you know, Arena is very, very hopeful, which is what it should be because it's Star Trek. It starts with this conflict between peers that, you know, a greater force steps in and makes them prove that, like, there's more to them than just petty fighting. Uh, and, you know, and, and Kirk manages to sort of prove their case by being the, the bigger man. And then in this one, there's sort of like... He, he calls the aliens out on how ridiculous it all is, in fact. And then the aliens just do a straight, like, appeal to force. Well, I don't care how ridiculous you think it is. This is how our culture has decided it's going to learn about your culture. And so it's it kind of interesting turn of the tables, I thought. And then everybody is kind of vaguely dissatisfied and confused at the end. And I'm like... Yeah, sure. It's it's first contact. You just met these guys. Like, of yeah, course absolutely. you don't understand each other or trust each other. It was kind of interesting to see that for once. But the the, the thing that's interesting with the uh, uh, the fight, how it ended, is these uh, Excalbians, um, it seems like they're as strong as the Talosians from the pilot, the cage. So why is, like, General Order 7 not enacted? Is, was my biggest thing at the end. Like, oh, these people can make anything appear and can make your ship blow up just by thinking about it. That's the same as oh. the Telosians. Okay, see, I didn't, but, I didn't read it that way quite. Um, I didn't think they were, they were projecting anything, anything mentally, which is, you know, which is the real risk of the Telosians. It's not just that the Telosians are powerful; it's that they can change your thinking and you'd never know it. Whereas yeah. the, what I thought really tied things together and explained the how is when they scanned Lincoln and they found out that he, he's a lava monster. And the, the, the explicitness of this turned out to be, you know, I did, I did a little reading because that's what I do. The explicitness of this was taken out, but the idea of the, of the script from the beginning is that this was a form of theater. That the Excalbians oh, okay. had... You know, deliberately, six of them deliberately changed their their own forms and their own minds in order to stage this play with the Enterprise, so that the rest of the Excalbians could could learn. They'd sort of disseminate the knowledge back, like the like the changelings or something. Yeah. So, and and you know, and that's technology that we've seen before, and we'll see again. The idea of changing their own forms and changing their own minds. And then I think at the end, you know, Kirk probably does, like, leave a warning buoy at the system, you know, don't come back, don't come here, they're powerful jerks. And then that's the yeah. end of it. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Um, but yeah, I think um, you talked about this in your Twitter thread about the presidential honors that they have. Yeah. For Lincoln. Um, and it, it was nice seeing... Uh, Scotty's dress uniform again, <laughs> um, but the fact that S Spock just puts on a music track is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, and Lincoln does straight up call him out for it. He's like, where the, where the fuck are the musicians? Where's the band? Cook's <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, no, we don't have a band on board. Well, you should. Every starship should have a band on board. <sighs> That's should. my decree. I mean, yeah, in like latest series, like. TNG and Voyager, there are bands on board. Uh, yeah. So it would be it would be weirder that none of the crew could like form a band on the Enterprise at this time. 
Well, you've got a fair few. I mean, of yeah, Spock obviously played Spock, music. You've got bagpipes with Strati. Yeah. Um, I'm sure someone else plays an instrument at some point. Uhura. Uhura, yeah. She plays the harp. Although, interestingly, yeah. actually, that brings me on quite nicely to one of the pieces of trivia, which is Ooh. this is actually the last time we see Uhura in the original series. Yeah, at least she got lines. Well, well, yeah. By true. production uh, release? or uh, By release order. By release, okay. I don't know about I also order. think it's the last one that she appeared in production-wise. It may well be. Um, but yeah, this is the final episode to feature the full ensemble. After that, you you get a few characters here and there. But yeah. Um, speaking speaking of the trivia, what else have I got? Uh, one of the uh, villains in this, one of the I say the villains, the four evil historical figures that are created. Obviously, you've got Genghis Khan, Colonel Green, Carl, uh, Carlos, Kalos, yes, and Kalos. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> And um, the fourth is uh, Zora of Tiburon. Uh, Tiburon, of course, being the same planet that Dr. Severin came from. So, yeah. not at a good a nice run of luck continuity. with people on that planet. <laughs> yeah, and I think they're mentioned in Enterprise. Oh. And I think that's all their mentions. Yeah, I, I, did, yeah. I, did, I did some wiki hopping, and one of them appears and is almost immediately killed in an episode of DS9. It's just, oh. a, it's just, it's just a Starfleet officer wearing like the same style of ears as Severin. You know, it's just the idea of whoever was writing the script. They just remembered that, oh, they're members of the Federation, and they sort of bring them in. Ah, oh, fair enough. Um, other trivia. Um, the character of Lincoln in this... Uh, which obviously I've mentioned my response to hip, uh, bleh, I'll try that again uh, the character Lincoln in this who obviously my I mentioned my response to seeing him was what the fuck is going on could have been even more confusing because he was originally supposed to be being played by Mark Leonard <laughs> because that man hasn't had enough roles in fucking Star Trek already that would have been really confusing like Lincoln, ap Lincoln appearing would be weird enough as it is Lincoln appearing and looking like Spock's dad do you that think he could have done a good Lincoln? Is the question. I because don't I, think, I think I've seen enough actor, of him to know. I think this actor did a really good job as playing as Lincoln. Oh, absolutely! He was a brilliant Lincoln. Yeah. Didn't Didn't you say it was he was Bill and Ted level? I, I <laughs> on Twitter could, may have compared him to the Lincoln in Bill and Ted. Yes. <laughs> But the Lincoln in Bill and Ted is also great. He's yeah, no, you were saying they were both great, which I agree with, scripted, I respect. Yeah, he's obviously scripted more comedically in Bill and Ted, but he is a great Lincoln nonetheless. I mean, Lincoln was funny. Like, you read his writing, he was a very funny gentleman. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but I, think I think that came across in this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I was just going to say, well, I think the whether it be down to the actor or the script or a bit of both, most likely, they really managed to balance well his comedy and his seriousness, because obviously you've got the scenes of him talking about... Um, the uh, What's the quote? Something along the lines of, um, the only good thing to come out of war is it ending. Yes. Which, which I, when I was doing my research, I saw apparently has, been, has like stuck in the cultural zeitgeist so much that that now frequently gets mistaken for an actual Abraham Lincoln quote. <laughs> yep, of course it does. But it was written by the story editor Arthur Singer. Yeah, and it's like like they do a brilliant job of of 
obviously he has his lighter moments in this, but he, you feel the weight of him being a man who's had to deal with a lot in his life. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah. just the way they use all the aspects, like him having been a backwoodsman, it's, it's just very thoughtfully uh, written throughout. It actually Definitely. reminds me of... Um, of something that we that we didn't get a chance to talk about for uh, Requiem, when it came time to you know do these 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 fictional Brahms and fictional Da Vinci's, um, a lot of the budget of the episode actually went to that, and they actually did commission new pieces in the Brahms style and in the Da Vinci style, and the yeah. you know one of the one of the uh, I guess junior producers at one point asked one of the more senior producers, "Hey, why don't we just get prints for this?" And he and he chewed him out. How do you get a print of a painting that nobody's ever painted? <laughs> but you know, I I really respect the effort that went into that, and with the effort here of making Lincoln sound like Lincoln. And you know, frankly, it's effort that the 24th century shows might not have put in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've got any... Oh, I've got a couple of bits of trivia left. Um, that when they're all in their dress uniform, Scotty's kilt is patterned after the, um, the sort of tartan pattern of Sir Walter Scott, which is a nice touch. Um, the Exalvian is never named in the episode. He's not even named in the credits. Uh, again, I don't actually know what the source for this is because I didn't have time to research it, but apparently he's called Yarnek. So yeah, Yarnak. Yeah, I don't know where that's from, but they do probably pull the Yarnak. In um, uh, I know the Excalibur's come back in Star Trek Online in an event there. Um, ah right. Okay. Y y you know that's Yarnak from that, but it probably comes from like the script or uh, a novelization or some novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's um that's the Savage Curtain. Uh, we'll move on because we are. Two one thing I did want to get to, um, you know, and yeah, usually I've been saying something I like. I liked this episode, so I'm going to say something I dislike. Um, I do think the idea of them having presidential honors uh, for Lincoln, is, it's cute, but it betrays the kind of American-centric viewpoint in yeah. which the United Federation of Planets is more or less taken to be a direct descendant of the United States of America. And I wish sci-fi wouldn't do this as an American. You know, Babylon 5 does pretty much the exact same thing. And it's just a moment that I think could have been thought through a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. I think I touched on that in the live tweeting a bit as well, that it seemed a bit odd that a federation that... Well, I mean, obviously, there, there's still a federation president and stuff like that. But the yeah. presidential honours, as they would exist for Lincoln, won't have existed for... I mean, I think someone said in the replies that the uh, Federation's existed for a couple of centuries at most at this point. Yeah, it's really cute on a micro level, but then when you zoom out to a macro level, you realize sort of the, you know, the mistaken thought process there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's, so that's, um, that's the Savage... Uh, yeah, that's the Savage Curtain. I thought I'd got the wrong episode from up then. That is the Savage Curtain. I'm yep. not going insane. Um... The next episode, uh, and the penultimate episode of this batch, all our yesterdays. Patrick? Yeah. Uh, so, the Enterprise flies up to a planet that's about to be swallowed by a... They call it a Nova, but, you know, really it probably should be an expanding 
red giant, but whatever. whatever. Uh, they know that there's humanoids on this planet, so they're like, hey, you know, how are, how are y'all dealing with your, your imminent deaths? You know, see if they can rescue anybody. <laughs> it turns out there's nobody there um, except for this kind of crabby old librarian, because, in fact, they have beamed down to a library. Uh, and because this librarian is very bad at explaining things, they kind of stumble into the discovery that um, each of the books or tapes in the library can be used to transport back to that era in the planet's history. And that's how the inhabitants of the planet have fled the destruction of their star, you know, kind of closing the loop, as it were. Uh, and Kirk accidentally gets himself sent to, I don't even know, Regency England, even though it's not on the right planet, but we'll get to that. Um, and then Spock and McCoy get sent back to the planet's Ice Age, uh, where they meet another refugee, someone who is unwillingly sent back in time, and, uh, she and Spock, uh, develop kind of a torrid, uh, love affair out there. Um, and then, you know, everything gets wrapped up at the last second, and they leave the system just as the planet's being destroyed. Yeah, and that, 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 I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you put it like that, but that is pretty much exactly how it that goes. That is pretty it's, much it. We get to see William Shatner bullying an old man, you know. Yeah, that... It, it, the plot goes all over the place a bit in this one. Mm. Like, it's we're on an alien planet, now we're in Regency England, now we're in the Ice Age, now we're here, but it's, it, it, it's it doesn't have time to settle and actually build sort of a, an environment for the plot to happen in, I think, is... Yes! Uh, it, it tries to with the Ice Age and with the caves, and I think that's the closest it comes, but... So, so paradoxically, because, you know, they just are talking in circles and circles with this librarian guy, and I'm like, okay, I get it. I've put together what's happening. Why haven't you? Um, yeah. And then that seems to take forever. And then when they're actually transported, it it seems like there's there's not enough time to, to really explore all the implications. So the, the pacing was just... One way or another, it, it felt off throughout. Um, and I think the reason this is a relatively well-regarded episode of the series is because of the Spock-McCoy-Zarabeth plot. But that is yeah. only one-third of this episode, and the rest of it is a really bad Kirk plot, and then this sort of awkward, failed exposition with the librarian. Who... Is well, the librarian's name is uh, Mr. Atos, right? Well, yes. that's just cute. It's, it's. <laughs> I didn't pick up on it when I was watching the episode, and I only realised when reading the trivia, and I genuinely face palmed. Is that that's <laughs> supposed to be Mr. A to Z? Because oh, I just got librarian. that. Oh god. Yeah, and it's like that's that's nice. I like that. <laughs> I, it's it, yeah it. It's very obtuse, I think, but I guess it's kind of cute. Yeah. Um. So something else that I um that I again didn't pick up on watching the episode, and I think this again comes down to talking about the budget and talking about how much less of a budget they had at this point. That this is the only episode in the entirety of the original series in which 
out of the usual ensemble cast, uh, Kirk, Spock and McCoy are the only ones to appear on screen. You hear Scotty's voice in this episode, but you don't see him and you don't see any of the rest of the sort of auxiliary cast. I didn't even notice that, but it makes sense. Which is just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a, a, a notable effect of, of how far the budget had dropped by this point that they were getting to... Like, I mean, how you've got, see, what, six actors in this episode? I wonder well, if... Yeah, you if, have a bunch of background in uh, Kirk's time, but, uh, yeah, it's basically six people. Yeah. I, I wonder if this episode and Requiem, which are both very notable in how little they feature the Enterprise, mm. I wonder if they're a reaction to all the bottle episodes they had to do. Um... And I actually seem to recall some correspondence going on where NBC was very upset. You're always on the ship. You're always on the ship. They need to be on planets. This is the show. And Fred Freiberger going, well, yeah, I want to do that, but I, you physically haven't given me enough money. Yeah. And that does that would tie in as well, actually, because this is, again, linking to that same thing. What I think the only episode, I don't recall any others, but where there are li there's literally zero footage of the inside of the Enterprise. That And that's unique. Um, Requiem almost pulled it off, but it has like 30 seconds on the bridge with Scotty and Uhura. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, talking about, again, talking about budget and talking about how much is being either reused or stripped down, uh, the... I, I, a Tavacron? Machine? Tavacron, yes. Sure. That's a that's a word. Um the actual machinery bit that uh Mr. Atos goes up to to fuck about with uh is the computer that Gary Seven had in his office in Assignment Earth. Which again comes back to like at this point you're reusing props, you're reusing sets, you're reusing everything that you can. Well yeah, well at least it's time related, so it's not the worst yeah. thing to reuse. That's very true. Um, but yeah, the, the the thing that interests me about the Atavacron is how they talk about you need your cell structure altered to be able to live in the past for a prolonged period of time. That yeah, that was doesn't weird. really work with anything else that Star Trek does. It, it just feels like an arbitrary plot limitation point yeah to make sure they don't instantly get back yeah pretty um, much yeah and kind of in the opposite direction is how like if he stands next to the right wall he can talk to spock and mccoy even though you know they're in completely different time periods yeah yeah that didn't make any sense i don't i didn't understand that i'll be honest and also if they only had 17 minutes left because they're in a different time they don't have 17 minutes left <laughs> yeah it's like just, how is time don't think about like what San Dimas time. time Bill and Ted again oh god yeah um, but then also with time you've got so you, Spock and McCoy go back 5,000 years to the Ice Age but Spock somehow reverts back to how Vulcans were 5,000 years ago which also doesn't track. Um, but then Bones doesn't? But then Bones doesn't. Mm -hmm. So 
I want to think it's some sort of like cat trick thing that makes Vulcans unique because uh, that's the only thing that really works in my head to explain why Spock does but McCoy doesn't that's yeah. that's very possible it's yeah it, it's strange like again it's an excuse to get the drama and the action that they yeah. wanted to get to happen um, and the basically the explanation that wound up in the final episode is word for word the explanation they gave McCoy uh, Nimoy Nimoy so he would just shut up and play the and play the part and I, I guess you you kind of get this this revelation of of the the conflict within him, which is always nice to see. And in stripping away those layers and looking at how McCoy really does frustrate him and really does push too far, but it, I know it it, it still felt like it was kind of tracking over the same material we've seen before. Yeah. And yeah. This this episode does a lot of weird things just to enhance the drama. So, I, I like, with the stranger that's with them in this Ice Age world, you don't see them for a long time, and then she takes off her coat, and there's this dramatic music, and dramatic zoom in, oh my god, it's a woman, and you're just yeah. there, like, oh, okay. Um, was that meant to be a big reveal? Oh my god, a woman? <laughs> and then... She takes, and then she takes off her, act, like, her coat, and she's wearing the skimpiest clothing, probably in Trek. Although Which is it, something to say, because there's weird, a lot though, of skimpy outfits. Yeah, that's weird though, because that's again comes back to something that I picked up on in my research, which I don't know why at all, but for some reason the network decided that for this particular episode and for that particular actress, she wasn't allowed to show her navel. Huh. I don't know, which leads on to a, a very funny story. In the um, when Rodenbury was writing his pilot for Genesis Two, mm. he explicitly wrote in a character that he wanted her to play, and eventually did cast her as, who had two navels. Because he was pissed off at the network for saying that she couldn't show her navel in Star Trek. Yeah, uh, he apparently said the network <laughs> owed me one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's weird. Which, yeah, it is a bit. Uh, you won't let me show a navel? I'll show two. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it, it just doesn't make sense because they're in the ice age of a world and she's wearing this, she, she wears a massive coat and then underneath it, no clothes at all. It's like, are yeah. you cold? And I guess it, you could explain it with, oh, she does say that there are geothermal springs or whatever in those caves, but still. It's it's a contrivance, I think. Yeah, yeah it's a contrivance to put in skimpy clothes. Um. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an excuse. Yeah. yeah, it is an excuse to put her in a in a skimpy um, outfit. <laughs> and then, talking of her, so their whole society seems to be based around this time travel technology because she's been sent there as a prisoner for was it her husband's or her family. Uh, some family member, yeah. She, she says kinsmen, and take that what you want, but they committed treason against a tyrant who then executed them, but then was like, huh, you're a woman, I'm not going to execute you, I'm just going to send you to the Ice Age. Have fun. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre one. Yeah, and then it's the question of how long... 
because time wouldn't be relative, but this episode does make time relative in these different timelines. Um, when was she sent back? Yeah, that's Is a good point. my mind? Because the, the implication seems to be that the tyrant was overthrown at some point. Yeah. So she might have been sent back to the Ice Age a thousand years ago, if they had that technology then. Um, yeah. But yeah, time it 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 just doesn't do time travel nicely, <laughs> and it that's my brain. No, it's yeah. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as an opportunity to make a very poor segue talking about time travel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because this episode sort of time traveled in itself, in that um, obviously it aired before Turnabout Intruder, which we'll get onto in a minute. Uh, according to the star date in this episode, this actually happened after Turnabout Intruder. Okay. So, really, in a way, this is the final episode chronologically. Which is then weird. <laughs> Which is then very but weird. But then Turnabout Intruder is weird as a finale. Well, yeah. Um, we're, I mean, but <laughs> we'll get to that, don't worry. Still talking about time, they're like, hey, there's three hours until this star goes supernova, let's check on this planet. I would suspect that they would know the supernova was happening years in advance. Yeah, like, they can't you, really you, sneak up on you. You, you know, no. supernova happen like thousands of years in the future, um, because you can detect it, but um, it's just like, oh yeah, okay, so we're gonna see if we can help, but the Enterprise is a small ship, you can't... What, what were they trying to do? If they landed and found that there was a whole civilization there, they couldn't evacuate them all. So, were they just being like, hey, how are you doing? Okay, see you later. What yeah. was their plan? <laughs> Is I'd what I'm asking. <laughs> turn up and say, hey, you're going to die. Bye. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, yeah, and then just the supernova effect at the end, I laughed at, actually, because it's so silly, because the planet just turns to dust. Um, and yeah, I mean that—that's obviously probably in the remastered version, but I found that amusing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll say the remastered version—I don't think quite pulled it off. It should have looked better than it does. Yes, I—I I agree with that. Um, but yeah, I've not got any other trivia about that episode, so we'll move along to the final episode of this of this week's batch and the final episode of the original series yeah we've made it uh, you've made it <laughs> turnabout intruder what an episode to end on it's yeah they they picked they certainly knew which one to pick um patrick do you want to take us through this one <laughs> sure um Kirk beams down to an isolated outpost that's only populated by his ex-girlfriend and one other guy, which hasn't happened for a season or so. Um, <laughs> it turns out that she's faking it and is, uses advanced alien technology she's discovered to body swap herself with Captain Kirk uh, because for reasons that are underexplored, uh, she hates him and wants to kill him and also wants to take over her li his life and be a starship captain. Uh, she doesn't quite pull it off, so she's forced to beam back to the ship in Kirk's body, 
while Kirk is in her body, Lester's body, uh, and the rest of the episode revolves around, you know, Kirk trapped in Lester's body trying to get the crew on his side uh, to prevent uh, Lester, who's in Kirk's body, from going batshit and executing everyone. <laughs> Wait, yeah, I mean, I've said this a couple of times already this episode, but yeah, it really is a stupid <coughs> sound. It's, um... It's an episode of Star Trek. I'll, I'll give it that. It is definitely an episode. Definitely is. Um, it is it the, the only uh, episode of, of season three that can really fairly to be, be said to have been written by Gene Roddenberry. Like, this was his pet project for the year, really. Oh, right, okay. God. Like, he, he gave suggestions, but he was no longer rewriting and yeah. Gene Bronberry's strength was more in rewriting than writing so he is a big reason why the first and the second seasons feel the way they do. In the third season it wasn't that he didn't contribute at all but he significantly stepped back his involvement and then this was like his script for season three that he contributed Oh right, okay. What a script um, Did he right? have to? Did, did he have to? <laughs> We've all been asking ever since could he, could he have just this, not? This is truly Gene's vision. And <laughs> yes. that is saying something. Turnabout <laughs> Intruder is the only canon episode of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, please don't say that. Oh, no. no, 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 no. Don't forget the first season of TNG. Oh, oh that what a, what a good Star Trek we have. God, I'm, I'm not looking for, I'm dreading getting to it with what I've been told. Um... Although I will touch on, because this is a bit of trivia that doesn't actually isn't hugely relevant to the episode, but does reference mm. TNG. So while we're talking about TNG, I will touch on that. <laughs> Obviously, this being the last episode of the original series, and it's the 79th episode, when TNG got to episode 80, there was a little sly nod in episode 80 about to that being the point at which TNG became longer than the original series uh, by basically referencing the turnabout intruder and having Picard state that they are... Uh, bypassing an archaeological survey on Camus 2, which is the planet where... Oh. Um, I've forgotten her name, but where she was... Uh, Janice Lester. Janice Lester, that's the one. Um, so they sort of included that in the 80th episode of TNG to be like, yeah, we're, we, we've gone past you. <laughs> that's nice. I didn't actually know that. Which is quite cute. But, uh... But, yeah. yeah um, unfortunately, we're not talking about TNG. This. We're talking about Turnabout Intruder. So I guess we've got to talk about the main reason why she wants to take over Kirk's body, and that is that apparently women aren't allowed to be starship captains. Do we have to talk about it? Well, we don't, but it's the main part of the episode, so it has to at least be mentioned, I guess. I, I think the most interesting thing about this is Gene's kind of propensity for having it both ways. So he could have had Lester say women aren't allowed to be starship captains, uh, but he doesn't. He has her say, you know, your world of starship captains doesn't admit women. Um, and I think it's because Gene always kind of wanted to be different things to different people. Like, even from the, the, from the pilot, he had a woman be second in command of the Enterprise and assume command of the Enterprise. So he had, you know, overall, I think his vision of the future had room for this but then to i think he also could be very 
uh, you know, I don't want to get sucked into talking about Gene Roddenberry, but um, he also could have very deterministic views about women. Like, he really thought that they thought differently from men and that there were different roles that each would be superior at. And I think he, he wrote it in these kind of weasel words so he could explore this idea of what, you know, women's suitability or lack thereof of commanding a starship and sort of wring out all that drama. But he didn't write himself into a corner. You know, he could always say, oh, yeah, you know, we always had women starship captains. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, I mean, obviously, going further down the line with Enterprise and now with Discovery, it has just been completely fucking retconned which I think is for the best yeah oh, so it, it, it probably more means okay your world of Starship Captains yeah I think which what what exactly does that mean I, th- I think it paints a more negative image of, of Jim Kirk as a bit yep. of a sexist himself but then he is <laughs> like uh, yep. I mean I don't know if either of you two saw the um the conversation with the the lovely gentleman who decided to have a go at me on Twitter the other day, yeah. um, who was trying to tell me that um, like Captain Kirk is this like paragon of justice and everything in the original series was perfect. And I was like, oh, did you actually watch it? Because he's a bit rapey. But <laughs> um, but yeah, he's he is he is not a perfect person. He is a sexist at the end of the day, mm. and yes. I think. Sorry, go on. Oh, I'm sorry. What, what's interesting, I think, is there's kind of this repeated... Whenever they bring back one of Kirk's old loves, um, there is this kind of... They tell the same story, whether it's Janet Wallace in The Deadly Years, uh, Janice Lester in this episode, and then kind of the canonical one has become, of course, Carol Marcus in Star Trek II. And they all revolve around the story of basically he chose his career and he chose his starship Uh, captaincy over them and you know I think that you know Gene's kind of trapdoor out of Janice's statement is that it could be liberally interpreted to be just describing that you know like Kirk's world in which he became a starship captain did not have room for the love of anyone else yeah yeah and it is at least, you know, it, it, it ties in with kind of the very explicit theme built in the early seasons that Kirk's love is for the ship and he doesn't have room for anything else. And so it's sort of the, the advancement of that. But of course, you know, we can say, hey, this Kirk fellow sounds like a bit of a cad. You know, because if you choose career over the people who love you and just sort of like use them as stepping stones, like... That's not a positive character trait, you know, at the very least that suggests some deep conflict. And, like, talking of that conflict, you then have that in the Nexus and Generations, where he is like, oh, I should have asked her to marry me and not gone off to the Academy. Or Of course, this is yet another character, but it's always the same story. It's always the same story. So it, it links well and just makes... Yeah, it just makes Kirk that character uh, and consistent with all his previous love interests. Um, when did he fit them yeah, all in? But yeah, happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. He was, just, he was probably seeing them all at the same time, though, again. Uh, knowing him, yeah. It's the future. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. We shouldn't judge. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, 
I don't I don't know what else to say about this episode to be honest. It it's odd. Yeah. Um it, it is odd. Um and I don't know what you <laughs> no, say about it's, it. <laughs> it's one of those episodes that's like it's very bizarre, but when you actually want to talk about it, it's like well, what do I say? It's, well yeah, yeah, I mean the the problem is you know, it's it's fruit of the poison tree. It's based on this very inherently you know, misogynist and implicitly transphobic premise that, you know, that, you know, hysterical, of the hysterical woman, right? That's who, that the conf, that's what the conflict is about. That there's something wrong with this woman because she hates being a woman, um, and so she's gonna cause all this mischief, right? So, so we hate that, right? We hate that. To, to, to atomize the episode a little bit more into its component parts, it's really splendid acting from Shatner. You know, he's, he's not embarrassed, he's not holding back, he's not giving it, he's not phoning it in like he is for a lot of season three. He completely transforms. You know, the, get, the guest star tries to keep up. She's got a much harder job because she's a day player. But the guest star tries to keep up and... and a few scenes are, are eerily effective, like when she does sort of the Kirk flirt with Chapel. Um, extremely good. Uh, we get very good scenes for Sulu and Chekhov and Scott that you absolutely cannot take for granted, you know, because their parts were so small. Um, but bringing this back into, you know, essentially a shipboard courtroom drama is what it appears by by the end, and everybody's got to stake out their positions. Um, Spock being ride or die, you know, using that mind touch to, to cut to the heart of the matter, and then the interesting position of having Spock stake out his position because of emotion, and McCoy staking out his position because of logic is a really... Clever, yeah. effective, effective reversal. reversal. So there's all Absolutely, these. Yeah. There's all these things I want to appreciate, but in the end, it's fruit of the poison tree. Yeah, I think that's a a really nice way to put it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, you sort of touch on there. Like, there are bits of this episode that are enjoyable, that are good. Yeah. It just, like you say, with the fruit of the poison tree analogy, it 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 falls apart. Yeah. At a somehow, macro level, trying to fit it all together. Somehow the parts are better than the sum. Yeah. Um, um, that is weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I've got a couple of bits of trivia on this one, and we'll try and wrap up, because we are getting on a bit. But a um, couple of bits of trivia. The production crew for this episode, apparently, whilst this was being shot, nicknamed the episode... Captain Kirk, Space Queen. <laughs> okay. Which is humorous, I guess. Oh, one, um, thing, oh, one thing I thought was interesting. Sorry, um, not to not to cut you off, but what I, I never, I never, I never understood, understood the the title of the the episode, which doesn't make a lot of sense in isolation. But it turns out that a popular uh, film, and I think maybe also a stage play of the time, involved a husband and a wife swapping bodies, and it was called Turnabout. So it's right. a, a, it's a title that would signal to the audience of the time what they were in for, and of course now the episode is a you know a billion times better known than the than the play, so it's a bit of an orphan reference. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. 
Um, but yeah, the rest of the trivia is pretty dull, actually, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Nurse Chapel's hair is brown in this episode rather than blonde is the level of trivia we're talking here. Um, well, and it's, you know, it, but it's interesting because it, it showcases that the cast knew that they were doomed. So there, yeah. you know, so there's no point to, to certain things. Like, you know, Chapel was only blonde because she was a brunette playing number one in the pilot. And this, is, yeah. and this is her saying, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, there's not much point anymore. This is the end. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I had, which is more of a... Well, I don't know whether it's an error or whether it's just like something that's not explained. But um, I didn't write down the actor's name for some reason. But he, this actor who's been in the show throughout uh, portrayed Lieutenant Galloway throughout the show. Um who of course was the character of Lieutenant Galloway was killed in the Omega Glory and then the actor came back to play Lieutenant Johnson from Day of the Dove onwards he appears in this episode but is credited and is referred to in the episode as Lieutenant Galloway again whoopsie which uh, well maybe Johnson is just taking on the name of Galloway as like yeah. a title he's like oh I look like, like him I'll just uh, see him but- but then, Galloway died. I I want to respect him. I'm gonna <laughs> please refer to me as Galloway. Uh, and it's like, okay, sure. But then, kind of but, in yeah. a reversal, though, they've got, uh, you know, subbing in for Uhura. They've got uh, Barbara Baldwin, who had a recurring character in the first season, uh, Lieutenant Martine, um, but now she's uh, Lieutenant Lisa. Yep. Right. As if that were even a last name. But it's yeah. sort of this, this weird, like, mix of neglect where someone's a character that they shouldn't be and someone's not a character she should be. Yeah, yeah it's bizarre. You can kind of tell that it's the end. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, just... they, they got the news during the filming of the episode that they there was an option for two more episodes they were all 95 percent sure that it was going to be the last season but they thought nbc might exercise their option for two more episodes and the word came down while they were shooting this that no you know when you're done shooting this episode you're done uh, and the last day of shooting was was very emotional because you had the three leads plus the guest stars on the planet set, and while they were shooting, they could hear the sounds of the bridge and the corridor sets being torn apart. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can see how that would have been... That would have been quite emotional. Um, but yeah, that's the Turnabout Intruder. Um, the only other bit of, tri- of trivia I have on that is that at the 50th anniversary convention in Las Vegas... Uh, it was voted the fourth worst episode of the original series. That's so generous. I don't think that's fair, but yeah, I I think I mean it's a bad episode. I think there's definitely more than three episodes that are worse than it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the six episodes for this week, and we'll do as we usually do. We'll go around and say, as difficult as it might be for this batch, what was your favourite episode? Oh, who's dying? Um, Dom, do you want to start as you're the guest? Ah, oh, but I haven't even decided which one's my favorite. <laughs> All right, Patrick, do you want to? <laughs> okay. Um, I say the Savage Curtain, and it's not even particularly close for me. That's the best one. Um, 
And then I think just because of the rotten, rotten premise, I've got to say Intruder for the worst one. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with that, to be honest, for on both on both counts. Savage Curtain yeah, right. right. is probably the best, and Turnabout is the worst. Yeah, I think I'm going to say Way to Eden is my favorite, just from the nostalgia point of view. That's fair, yeah. Um, but I really like Savage Curtain in just the seeds it sets up, and then obviously we get a lot of Kaelas later, and a lot of um, Surak, and some green. It's um, not half-assing anything. Right? Yeah. It's almost the only episode of season three where it just feels like balls to the wall, man. Yeah. Yeah. And Way to Eden, I, I think, that. is an easy second place for me, by the way. Mm. Yeah, I can get behind that. So, Dom, what's your pick for the worst one? Worst one? Probably Intruder. Yeah, I think, I think we're, all, we're all pretty like, much in agreement here. I enjoyed a lot of the scenes, but it just didn't come together. It was it was a lot of good ideas and a lot of bad ideas, and the bad ideas very much overpowered the good ones. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say um, it, it aged like yogurt left in the sun, but it, I feel like it had already aged while it was airing. Yeah, I think that's yeah. it's an interesting analogy, but we'll we'll go with it. Yeah, we'll go with it. Um, but yeah, so that was this episode of um. Of the Never Seen Trek podcast. Dom, do you want to plug your socials or any projects plug that you work on? Plug my socials, yeah. So I'm at Dom D. Paris on Twitter. I talk about Trek and stuff. And uh, I'm the assistant editor at uh, the Trek Central, where we talk news and theories on YouTube. Um, so check us out there. Hopefully we'll be covering, uh, is it, uh, yeah, San Diego Comic Con in a couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Cool, and until next week, I've been Sam. I've been Patrick. And I've been Dom. And that's been the Never Seen Trick Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>